there's a sauna, like a group sauna down in, it's near like Avon or something like that, but it's right on a lake. And so they have the sauna, which you go in and you sit and it's like 212, very, very hot and Oof. kind of they pour water on it. It's, it's intense. Mm. Then you come out and it's right on the lake. So you can plunge in the lake and then come back out. But mm. the last time that we went there, the, I, the lake was frozen over. So I was like, oh, I guess we don't get to go in the lake today. And they're like, what? And then they went over with a sledgehammer and (laughs) sledged open. There's basically a set of steps. And so they sledgehammered it open. And now there's just this like icy pool sort of thing that you can plunge into. And and we did that. And it was, it it wakes you up. Oh, my goodness. It was great. I actually really liked it. Oh, my goodness. But respect. (laughs) Respect. Thank you. (laughs) So what do you want to talk about today? Hi, Chris. Hi, Steph. How's it going? Oh, and it's going well. And you? It's going pretty good. I have a, about a week left on my current client, mm. which is always fun and, of course, a little sad to split ways with someone that you've enjoyed working with. Yeah, it is interesting. Each of our client rotations, I know that we're going to like break up at the end. changes how you interact, but you also want to engage fully in all of that. But bittersweet is how I would describe it in most cases. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to miss working with them, but who knows? That's kind of the cool thing is sometimes they come back and I'll get to work with them again. Yep, indeed. So um, one of the things that you've been working on in this project, so it was React, and we talked about that a little bit last week, but we didn't talk about the state management side of things. So I am interested in your thoughts on the state management, how you approach that in the project. I think there were some conversations early on as to what you would choose and all of that. So yeah, what are what are your thoughts? We did. Well, when we started the project... We initially considered that we were going to use a GraphQL endpoint, and that was an additional thing that we would need to build. And as we got a little further into the project, we decided, well, we we already have a REST endpoint, and we could go ahead and use that so we can really build out the product that we needed first, and then we could go back and decide if GraphQL still made sense for this. And so that's where we landed. So we did uh, look at two different options. There was we could go with Redux. We also looked at using the Apollo state management. And we ended up going with Redux because the person I was working with had more experience in Redux and felt comfortable with it. And being new to both, I didn't have a strong opinion about either. They both seemed like really good solutions. Yeah. So I've been using Redux for about a month now. And it's gone well. I've enjoyed using it. I, I think one of the biggest proponents for using Redux is how much documentation there is. That has been incredibly helpful with onboarding, with answering my own questions. I do find a lot of the examples are still pretty contrived, like finding really solid, complex enough examples of Redux has been challenging. And then when you add TypeScript on top of that, although mm-hmm. there are some heroes out there that have tried their best to provide examples of adding TypeScript with Redux, but it's still, it's it's challenging and it's very different than what I'm used to doing. Redux is? It is, yeah. yeah. I think where I do the data manipulation just feels different and less contained and that may be just because I'm not used to it or I'm still learning the best practices with Redux. But right now it's a lot of the state management or a lot of the state changes will happen within like the map state to props, where if we need to filter out some of the data to then supply the component, then we will pass in an ID, find that appropriate value or record in the state, and then pull that out and then maybe transform it and then pass it to the component. And all that feels really magical because it all happens before the component loads. Mm. And that surprised me. Yep. In theory, or ideally, you can introduce a layer, the like selectors layer. Are you using 
Reselect on this project? We are. Okay. I haven't done a lot of work with Reselect, but yes, it is on the project. And so then you can use that to encapsulate that data access logic and ideally test that and constrain that independent of the component. But there are a whole bunch of trade-offs that you just described, so I kind of want to pick apart a bunch of them. Okay. So the first one, I want to start all the way back with the... Can uh, I circle back and ask you a question? Yes, Where absolutely. would that Reselect logic live? In, well, let's, all right, let's back up to the top. Mm -hmm. Redux is a state management library for use in client-side applications, largely aligned with React, but not necessarily specific to that. So I know that like Angular, people have made Redux work with it and the same with Ember, but I think it the vast majority of usage, I'm guessing, is in the React world. So it gives you a way to have this one big state atom, and then you have these reducer functions, and whenever something happens in your application, instead of modifying the state directly, you emit an action. And then Redux manages that and has the reducers and all of that. So each of those are part of the Redux story, the actions, the reducer functions, and then the global state object mm -hmm. thing. But now we're talking about the selectors. I do like that part, how you can trigger you dispatch an action, mm -hmm. and then you can listen for that somewhere. Yep. And then you can make the change based on that. That is the part about Redux that I like, or I would even say love, that model of an application, especially a really complicated client-side application. And so when I say that, I, I'm thinking of something like a client-side drawing tool. So you've got this app, and you open it up, and you've got a bunch of controls on the side. And so you can click, like, I want to draw a rectangle. And then you click on the canvas and start a rectangle. And then you click on another point, and it draws the rectangle in that. And then you change the color. And then you stretch it a little bit more. And then you undo that, and you redo. And mm -hmm. that kind of heavy client-side manipulation is the sort of thing where I think Redux shines. And mm -hmm. it shines because of that stream of actions. And so it's these descriptions of what happened, not direct state manipulation. You're not going in and modifying the square and then modifying the square again. You're saying, person clicked on the canvas, they clicked again, and you're making all of those different actions. And that stream of actions is the thing that I think is interesting and mm -hmm. that Redux totally gets right. But then there's all the other stuff you have to do. And so to the question of the reselect logic, typically selectors are another piece of that. Okay. So selectors are functions that take in the state as it is and return you whatever subset and possibly transform that subset. Right. And often there's some complexity in like normalizing the state cache. Mm -hmm. So instead of storing the list of users, you store the list of IDs for the users in whichever order you want them. And then separately, you have an object graph almost. Mm -hmm. You have like user ID 12, and that's this user object. And that's the hash index. And that uses often a library called normalizer. It is interesting to me how many different things often come into play when you're working with a Redux application. Mm -hmm. Normalizer is one thing. Reselect, that's the one, mm -hmm. uh, is another. And then there's React Redux, Redux itself. Mm -hmm. Often there's some other thing. Were you using anything like any of the side effect libraries? Redux oh. Observable or... No, none of those ring a bell. I don't think so. We're using Thunks. Oh, yes. Redux Thunk. We are using Thunk. Okay. That's the de facto answer as far as I can tell. But then there are a bunch of other alternatives. And so there's a fun little triangle that you can draw for Redux. And then there's like each vertex of the triangle is an interesting part. And then each edge is also like you've got your state and then you've got your components and then you've got your reducers. And in between them, you have actions and selectors and... It's a lot of fun to think about, but in practice, I found it to be a lot of code to write. It is a bit verbose, which not that I terribly mind being verbose with my code. And I've seen where people have tried to implement ways that you can clean up some of the repetitiveness. That part I don't mind as much. I think it's still learning some of the best practices. So going back to kind of like that hash index 
example that you'd referenced, when passing information to a component, let's say I pass in the ID for a user, mm -hmm. and then that component is connected to the store, so then it can use that ID to then look up the user. And then if there's anything that you want to change about the user before you give it to the component itself, it's then adding props to the defined component props. And that part was magical to me when I first encountered that. And it doesn't feel bad. It's just... I'm still determining how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the architecture as informed by Redux is an interesting thing. And there are a lot of blog posts written on it, which is also an, like, this is a pattern that we've used for Redux. And it's mm -hmm. like, it feels like we're still searching for, like, Rails is relatively well-defined, and I think that's one of the things that we love about it. We know mm -hmm. where to put the code in it, mostly. Everybody gets service objects confused. Yeah. App services, that's a thing that's been said a few times. But <laughs> I do like the explicitness of Redux, mm -hmm. but... There's an aspect of it that broadly comes to play when I'm looking at either Apollo or Redux, which basically anything client-side where you're doing reasonable state management is you're now caching and you have local state and then you have remote state and they differ from each other and you get out of sync. And I kind of miss when things were stateless. You make an HTTP request, you show a page, and then you've got a form on that page. And then you submit the form and you get a whole new page. And I think in the last episode, I was just saying that I'm shifting more to feeling comfortable in this world. But... That statelessness is wonderful. Like I've run into a bunch of caching-related bugs on both Redux and GraphQL Apollo apps. And I wonder, like, what if we were to just burn it down in between every like page that we transition and rebuild the cache? I had a moment like that just a couple days ago. There's a new page that I'm building and where essentially someone goes through and they fill out a very long form and at the end they'll hit submit and then we'll take them to a review page so that they can look at their data um, or look at all the fields that they have filled out before we then submit it. And on that review page, my initial gut reaction was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make an API call because we've been constantly posting the information as the user has been completing fields on the form page. So then when we had the review page, I initially thought that I was going to grab that from the API and then render it that way. And then it dawned on me. It's like, well, I already have all of this mm. in state. So if I want to keep this snappy, then I can pull it from state. But there have been some interesting scenarios where I've still run into the state is stale. So when the user is updating the form field, it's not updating on the review page. And it's still in development. It's still in progress. But to me, that was interesting how I immediately just assumed like I was mm -hmm. going to be pulling this in versus using the state that I already had. But I think that just goes to show my habits. I mean, I don't even think it's a terrible default, though, because as you transition to that new page, I assume it's a new URL, the like preview page, right? It is. And so you're transitioning to that new page. If someone hard refreshes on that page, will it make the data request? That's a good question. I don't know yet. <laughs> it doesn't right now. Mm -hmm. Initially, I moved the setting of the application state up a level higher. So as soon as you load the app, if it doesn't have state, then yes, it could make that request. Okay. But that's still a good question that I have concerns about that I need to test out is if someone goes directly to that page and then there's nothing in state yet to make sure it makes that request and right. loads and everything with maybe I. And for that reason, I think your default assumption that, like, well, obviously it needs to request the data again, it, I actually think that's perhaps a very reasonable default. And then caching can be an optimization and using that local version. But I have legitimately thought about, and it sounds somewhat heretical once I've kind of gotten comfortable with these technologies, but what if we were to just dump the cache mm -hmm. on every single page transition? We can listen for those page transition events, dump the cache, and then rebuild from there. And so... That idea that the path that you take to get to a page 
could potentially lead to bugs. Like, oh, if you navigate from you know the normal workflow of go to this page, fill out the form, see the results. If you navigate that way, it's fine. But then if you reload that page, it might break. That being a question, that being a thing that I have to concern myself with again is concerning. I don't want that concern back. We got rid of that one. We figured it out. And now we've sort of brought it back into the world with some trade-offs, with some wonderful features. But Yeah, I'd be curious to know if it's a performance concern enough. Maybe it's it's not worth, like you said, referencing from the cache. But then again, it, it feels like if I can keep this faster for the user, then I will. But I don't want to do it at the expense that it's going to require a lot more dev time or lead to a buggy experience for the user. So yeah, that would be interesting to see if that's detrimental enough to the performance that I need to pursue using everything in store if it's there, Mm -hmm. and then if not, making the request. I wonder if there's like e-tags or something else fancy that you could do, because in theory, if you already have the correct local version of it, Mm -hmm. then the next time you make the request, you could send up the e-tag with it, and then the server can reply with 304, you're good, you've got it, or no, here's the updated version, you're out of date. Is there an optimization there, but still trade-offs, you know? Yeah. Moving back to a different part of this, you mentioned that initially you considered GraphQL, but then the team decided not to. How many different API endpoints do you have in this? It sounds like there's probably very few. It's basically like posting the results of the survey. and There's two right now. There's one for a get, and then there's one for a post. You're getting the survey, and then you're posting the filled out version? Right. So we're programmatically building a form, mm-hmm. which turns out is hard. Ooh. And uh, there's an API endpoint that we'll use to collect all the fields, anything that we need to build on the client side. And then we also have the second endpoint of where we're going to be posting that data. This is a rare case where I think GraphQL would probably have been more of a hindrance than a help, mm-hmm. especially the nature of how dynamic the data that you have is and how sort of interrelated and nested and the query to get the data to render your form, as far as I understand it, would have been so complex in a GraphQL world that it is kind of nice that it's all boiled up and you can just say, give me the thing. Whatever is true for that thing, give me all. I mean, it's definitely expressible in GraphQL, but it would be hard. I think it makes sense that you did not go with GraphQL on this, which is rare because I like GraphQL a lot. I've heard. I agree. Yeah, I, initially I was a little disappointed because I thought GraphQL may be a good fit, but I also agree. One, for a little bit of velocity, just because not that we'd want to make decisions based on that, but at the time we weren't convinced that GraphQL was going to be a value add, mm. so it felt appropriate to go with something that we knew to go ahead and start building, and then as we knew more, to come back and make that decision. Yep. You said there like velocity and we don't want to make the decision based on that. But I think that's often actually a very reasonable thing. Like if we have to get a product to market, there are many, many constraints that make velocity a thing that we have to consider. How quickly can we get this thing out there? How quickly Mm -hmm. can we get the first version out there? Mm -hmm. So I would actually consider that a perfectly reasonable reason to say like, you know, GraphQL maybe even makes a ton of sense, but not for this team right now. Again, it would make me sad because I like it a bunch. But in this case, it does also sound like it would have been a bit of overhead and not necessarily much of a gain. I think so. And that is fair for the velocity and making sure that you have appropriate trade-offs because that is part of the thing that we do. We make sure that we can iterate quickly so we can get it out to users, get feedback, or if we need to get it out to market. And then there's the where you go a little too far with considering velocity to where you start implementing code that's not sustainable or work habits that's not sustainable. But overall, yeah, I agree. Velocity is very important. Indeed. But I think, yeah, those two constraints of code quality and sustainable pace, human sustainable pace, are the two that ideally let's try and maintain those. But then can we sacrifice some aspect of this design or can we cut some features or do a simplified version to start and then enhance it? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that all definitely makes sense. 
So one of the other interesting tools on this project that I've used is Cypress. It's an end-to-end integration testing framework, and it's been a real pleasure to use. I haven't used many end-to-end testing frameworks within React. I know there's two big ones, I think, Cypress, and I think there's one that you like that's React testing. Uh, React testing library I consider more of a unit testing level. I do love React testing library. I think it's got a fantastic set of considerations and things, but Cypress is definitely a level above that. And I would recommend both on most projects. Mm. Have you used anything besides Cypress for your integration tests? I feel like I've used Selenium and things like that in mm-hmm. the past. So what's interesting is when you get to that level, you can actually sort of use anything. Like we could use RSpec and Capybara. Mm-hmm. We won't, probably. <laughs> I think I have even once, just due to the team's comfort with them. Okay. But you want something that's actually going to have a headless or headful browser and run with that. And so I think mm-hmm. Selenium is typically the one I used in JavaScript land. I want to say there's Nightmare JS is another, but I've not actually used that one. But I've used Cypress and mostly enjoyed it. Uh, and then React Testing Library being lower level, closer to Enzyme mm-hmm. in terms of what it provides. Yeah, so what I'm currently using is Enzyme. I'm curious because you said it's been mostly enjoyable. Is there anything that you run into? Yes. Well, I guess we can start on the positive side because okay. there are some fantastic things about it. The fact that you can actually watch the tests run the way it allows you to step through them. Mm-hmm. It's got some great stuff in there, but I remember running into some weird flaky tests, which the whole hope was that that would never happen in mm-hmm. Cyprus, but it did. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the specifics, though, so I will not say them because I can't remember. But overall, mm-hmm. very good. Did you? How were your experiences with Cypress? Same. Getting up and running with Cypress was a breeze. I really enjoyed that part. Watching the test run was really nice. I uh, haven't run into any pitfalls with it. The only thing I did encounter that was difficult was then setting up Cypress to run on Circle CI. And that part proved to be more challenging than I expected. They also have great docs. But one portion of their docs, they talk about setting up Cypress to run on integration. And they have Travis as an example. They have CircleCI as an example. And they give you config options. One of them shows using CircleCI's orbs. I don't know if you've heard about orbs. orbs. Yeah. No, what's an orb? CircleCI is launching orbs, which are essentially bundled configurations. So something that you might have already packaged together, code that you're used to writing in all your CircleCI configurations, and they're packaging them up. So then you can just import them directly into your configuration file. It's going to help you save some of the steps. I haven't used it, but Mm -hmm. that's my understanding. Is this maybe close to a Heroku build pack? Yeah, that sounds or something like that. Similar. So it'll bring things like I need Node this version, I need a Postgres, I need a whatever. The orb is the collection of those things. Yes, it will define some of the build steps for you as well. I know they have one that's for Cypress specifically. I'd have to look into it more for more details. But yeah, I think it would be similar to a build pack. Well, I'm very interested in that because I enjoyed the additional flexibility that Circle CI, I guess the 2.0 version of the stack Mm -hmm. introduced. But then I have spent a lot of time configuring things like how do I cache the npm version.lock file? And how do I know when to bust that? And just writing those rules that are largely the same and that I end up copying across projects. So exciting if they've introduced a thing. Orb is an interesting name. Yeah. I, Why orbs? I couldn't tell you. I, I, I don't actually it. expect you to know. I'm just sort of saying. <laughs> I mean, you might. But. Well, let me see. I came across it because they're having a hackathon here in Boston where they were inviting a couple people to come and build something with their orb platform. And that's what caught my attention. It makes sense to me now that because I hadn't thought about having CircleCI build some of those configured packages or those steps that I'm so used to writing because I am in that place where a lot of times when I'm setting up a new project and I'm writing that config file, I'll often go to another similar project and just copy it over. So it seems really nice. It seems like a way to improve that where I don't have to keep copying stuff over. Instead, I can reach for something that is hosted and, and used by others. 
But circling back to when I was having trouble setting up Cypress on CircleCI and going through the docs, they do have an example of setting it up with Docker or with the orbs. And I wasn't fully sure of orbs yet. And so I was going with something that I already knew. I prefer to go with the less magical approach off the bat when I have the option. So I was going with the Docker approach. And one of the things that I found surprising is it didn't document in there how to start the application. So when it was running on Circle and I was watching it, it kept failing because Cypress was saying that it needed a server to be running, which makes sense because I'm running it locally when I'm, I'm running the test. But having the app start itself and then make sure it's unblocked so then the process can continue and Cypress can run against that server was new to me. And it took a while to figure out. It wasn't until I kept searching and looking through the Circle CI docs that I found that they do have a background option that you can specify. So as soon as you add a flow where you need to start up a server, but then you need to make sure the next process can continue to run, you can put background true. But that felt sneaky to me. Mm. It just wasn't obvious. And I'm not sure how the <laughs> sneaky Cypress... And like do you not like that approach or sneaky in terms of like, that was a sneaky option that I wish was more clear initially? Sneaky that I wish was more clear. Okay. Once I found it, it was great. It sounds like the right thing, so. Yeah, it, no, it felt perfect once I found it, but finding it was difficult and took a long time before I finally got there. So I just wish that had been somehow elevated where I knew that that was an option to me sooner. And I'd been meaning to reach out to Cypress and see if I can contribute to their docs to see why they've decided to not put that step in there. It seems like such an important step. I don't know if there's something else happening under the hood, but it, it seems like a step that they're missing in their docs. Mm. I do remember, I didn't do the integration on the apps, a few of them that I've worked with Cypress on, so someone else took care of that. But I do remember looking at the config files and like startup files. I'm like, that's a lot of code that ideally we wouldn't have to write or manage or copy or whatever. So I do remember that. I also remember now seeing some failures on CI that would only happen on CI and then the videos were not recording. So when that works, the thing where Cypress runs in a headful browser on CI and records a video, mm -hmm. and when there's a failure, you can watch the video. That's an amazing thing. That's fantastic. Unfortunately, the videos were failing along with the tests failing, and it was unique and only on Circle. It was one of those situations. It was just like, ah, oh, everything I wanted here didn't work the way I wanted it. But I feel like we may have just run into some weird hiccup, and mm -hmm. in general, that experience is better, certainly. Uh, that thing where CI just fails and you're like, I can't, I have no idea what it's talking about. And it yeah. turns out you were just getting bounced to the login page the whole time. And if you saw a video, it's so clear. That is the dream. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't had any of my tests fail in Circle CI yet. <laughs> um. Well, <laughs> I don't feel attacked at all. <laughs> no, it's fine. But yes, that sounds really nice because, yeah, that is one of those tougher parts to bug is when something's failing remotely, but it's passing locally. Mm -hmm. And then I do love that Circle CI has the ability that when you restart a build, you can also have that SSH option. That's been a lifesaver for me a couple times. That one, definitely. I haven't used it a ton, but the few times it's been like, oh, no, this without that, I don't know how I would have solved this problem. Question on your test setup. So your the app is now booting up. You're putting that into the background via the magic background option. Are you also spinning up a fake server? Or how is your app running in test mode? Where is it getting data from? And what's it communicating to when like a user fills out a survey and clicks submit and then they see the preview? What is that spec interacting mm. with overall? So we are still wiring up some of the pieces where it's fully communicating with the API. So the honest answer is we're not quite there yet. 
So we are mocking out some of the data and we're pulling that in. So we have like a mocked out file with all the JSON structure that we expect. And then we're using that at the moment. And then as we continue to integrate with the API, then we will need to take that next step. And I'm not sure yet what we'll do. I think previous time you and I have chatted on here, we talked about the different ways to work with third-party APIs and the complexity therein. I have really enjoyed working against a fake API that's running as a separate process particularly in GraphQL, because it's pretty easy. You can just say, give me a fake server based on this schema, and it will just do that. You can't do everything, and you need to interact with it and tell it how to handle certain situations. But Mm -hmm. the -the out-of-the-box experience there is actually pretty fantastic. Like, your app is running with no caveats. It's just doing the thing, talking to a server. It doesn't know it's a fake server. Why does it need to know? That part sounds great. The idea that if I have that schema that then mm-hmm. powers the, the fake server that I can use against the test. So since I'm not using the GraphQL, I won't have that pre-built schema for mm-hmm. me. So then the idea of having to maintain the fake server and write code for that doesn't thrill me. But I, I do agree in the past, I've enjoyed being able to run against the fake server, but I don't know. I still have mixed opinions on which direction I'd like to go. The maintenance burden is high and the ability to like get out of sync and have your fake server be lying to you. It's definitely a thing that happens, and it's a lot of work to maintain that. And so I'm of a similar mind, but GraphQL helps with that. And so if I'm on a GraphQL project, then it's relatively clear. Spin up a fake based on that because I know it's going to be in sync. And then augment that with additional behavior and things like that. Uh, the team over at EasyCater has actually introduced a project called Lunar, I want to say but it allows you to interact with that fake server and tell it for this test case, when I do a mutation, respond with this data. And so rather than having mystery guests and things like that, it allows you to configure that server in a more direct way. And that experience looks really great. That's a thing that I'm excited about, in addition to just the automatic mocking that you get from a GraphQL schema. Can you speak a little further to that? You said when you make a mutation, mm-hmm. that what's the maintenance on the back end to then respond to that mutation? So you're spinning up this fake server in the background that reflects on the schema and says, okay, for this schema, I know how to respond to things. But for mutations, you need to tell it a little bit more specifically how to handle that. And so you can have a default mm-hmm. response to mutation. But via, I believe it's an HTTP request, you can talk from the test, which is like the Cypress code, over to the fake API server that's spinning up for GraphQL and tell it, you hit that back end and say, if you get a request that looks like this, respond with this. And so you essentially stub out the response. In this case, I want an error response to this mutation. And then you can test and assert that you see the flash toaster pop-up thing that says you got an error versus for this mutation, make it a success and return with this data and see that you get the right thing. Interesting. I do like how that removes the mystery guess because that's mm-hmm. one of the other things I disliked about working against an actual spun-up server is that then it just seems a bit mysterious how it's working until you dig a little deeper and you find out that there's a server that's running in the background to respond to the request. Yeah, I'll have to see where we land with it. Uh, we may start with mocking it out first and mm-hmm. then move. Well, given that we have a week on the project, we may go with the mocking out approach mm-hmm. for now. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see if, it, if we feel like it's worth diving into creating the fake server and going that route. And we are in a state where our app is, it's complex, but it's also fairly simple in the sense that we just have the two endpoints and the data that we're controlling. Since we are programmatically generating a form, we can make a very short form, a small form for our test, and then posting that data back and getting back responses and validations on the information. There's a subtle art to deciding what to test and at what level and Mm -hmm. how many different paths through it and all of that and how to keep your test speedy but also complete 
And unfortunately, my general feeling on like, how much should you be testing is, I don't know, however much makes you feel confident to deploy to production at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, which is a terrible answer. <laughs> I kind of, if it helps, that's what I've done too. When I'm torn and I'm not sure how much to test something, I'm like, well, do I feel confident that I could deploy this and I'd feel good about it? Then yeah, that's the rule of thumb that I'll use too. I just want a better answer than that, a more concrete one. But so many of the things we do boil down to, I don't know, what's your intuition tell you? And how well honed is that intuition? But here we are. Here we are. All right. So I want to take things in a slightly different direction now. We have received a piece of listener mail. So this was someone who wrote in asking a question um, of the hosts at bikeshed.fm. So first, I want to highlight that that's awesome. I'm super excited to have this question come in. So folks out there, uh, if you would like us to discuss something or if you have any questions or anything that you would like Stefan Mai's thoughts on, please send us an email at hosts at bikeshed.fm or feel free to tweet or any other sort of interaction there. But yeah, to dig into this question, it's a... Um, it's complicated. There's a bunch of pieces to it. So I feel like we'll have a couple different thoughts to provide. I'm also going to anonymize some of the details here just because that was the person's request. So recently, I started working at this financial institution. Unfortunately, communication in the company isn't great. It takes quite some time to understand the business requirements and everything that we need to do at the end of the day. But the real problem is that some of the business requirements are prone to introducing bugs. For example, we need to build an endpoint to update and save a user object with certain required fields before passing it to a different microservice for further processing. But the data set we get doesn't have these required fields. As a result, a large part of the backend service and front-end client stories are blocked for the next four weeks. The scenario happens quite often when the business requirements are still being developed and the dev team is catching up fast. Sometimes when a new set of requirements comes out, one little detail will contradict with the previous requirements, but nobody will notice it until someone is working on that particular story. So based on your experiences, what would you do to minimize these hiccups? There's a lot there. That's yeah, There's a lot there, yeah. So the part that stands out to me is the notion of being blocked when you have the idea that there's work to be done, but it sounds like there is information that they're waiting on. So they're unfortunately in a position where they're sitting on their hands. Is that what you're gathering from this as well? Yeah. So they need to have a lot of synchronization between different teams because the data is distributed across this platform and they've encountered a lot of bugs in the process where a field will be missing or things like that. That is a hard one. So if you have a larger team and if you have everyone that's split up and you're trying to tackle this particular problem where it sounds like there's not a lot of collaboration between the teams except at a higher level where there's some individual, hypothetically, that's going to the meetings of the other teams and stating their needs and then they're carrying that back to the engineering team to tell them what they need to implement. My initial reaction is to have more people talking to each other and even have rotations. If you can have someone that's on one team join one of the other teams for a while, so then you also are spreading the knowledge. So if someone is working on one team for a couple months and then they're rotated on to another team, they'll bring that knowledge with them and have some insights. So when there is a little bit of a breakdown the communication, they may have some insight to be like, oh, well, I know a little bit of that tech stack, so I have some concerns or some things that I can bring up and talk about it. Yeah, I think the core of this, and I think the core of a lot of situations that we come into is communication. Communication is often the like first, last, middle, all of the lines of defense that we have to trying to resolve these things. So it sounds a little bit like there's a waterfall-esque, like a mini waterfall process happening here where there's some team, the product management team, that is making determination about the work to be done and then passing that down to the developers and then that sort of split across a bunch of teams. And then ideally that all fuses back together and becomes a feature that a user cares about. Mm -hmm. But that sounds a lot like 
a waterfall to me. And so is there a way that you can shift that process such that a team owns that user story instead of I own the part in this microservice of communicating this bit of the data? That sounds awesome. I like that part a lot. The, the idea of having someone being able to own that from the user's perspective or from the full feature story perspective and being able to collaborate across the teams sounds like a big win. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like technical realities can make that more difficult. If you have a system that's fractured into a lot of microservices, part of the reason to do that is to keep each individual team ideally isolated and able to work on their own. So sort of the, the higher level is it sounds like there might be a system that's broken out into pieces where those pieces might be entity specific. So this is one of the things that it's a phrase that I've caught on to that I really like when talking about service-oriented architecture, which is entity services. So like the user service would be an entity service. User is an entity within our system. And I find that that's a really complicated way to break a system down. We put the users over here and we put the orders over here and we put the products over here. And those are three distinct services. In reality, when people are interacting with your website, they are a user trying to order a product. They need all three of those things. And so splitting it along that line is almost never going to allow a given flow to be expressed in a straightforward manner. So instead, when I think about SOA, the few cases where I really like it are like an image service. We need something that knows how to like crop images and run image magic and do background processing and scale up and down independently. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about SOA a bunch of times. Josh Clayton wrote a blog post recently. I believe that's actually out there in the world. If not, there's a great blog post in the works, everyone. Uh, I'll link to it if it's out there. But it's Josh talking about how to consider SOA and how to, if we are going to decompose our system into services, what are the lines on which we might want to split that? So that's another consideration mm-hmm. is I think SOA is a very, very complicated solution to a people problem. Mm-hmm. And depending on the way that you draw those lines, you can actually introduce additional complexity into the system. I am intrigued. There's a another particular line in there that you'd mentioned about the business requirements are still being developed, but the dev team is catching up fast. That part sounds interesting to me because it sounds like one of those, it's the hurry up and wait mm-hmm. kind of game where it's interesting that that information and that feature is being shared with the dev team before there's anything that they can do about it. For me, that's that's a bit demotivating when you see stuff that comes on the board, but there's nothing that you can do about it yet. Mm-hmm. So that feels, uh, maybe it's just a shallow change, but not sharing that type of work with a team until it feels more ready for work. And then having your feature work or your development work be focused more on actions that can be taken. That's something that I've noticed slipping into some of the different Trello boards or teams that I'll join is there's often a ticket that's very vague. And then I'll ask, what action can we take with this? And nobody's quite sure. Mm -hmm. And those are typically the ones that I'll archive (laughs) as soon as possible. (laughs) Steph the destroyer. I just want to say ambiguous, or if we can't define it. Otherwise, it just feels like it's mental clutter. It's Mm -hmm. it's taking up the space. I'm focusing on it because I'll see it each day. And then I'll ask myself, what can I do about it? So it's having this to-do item that I can never check off. So it's mental clutter that I'd like to clear up. And it sounds like maybe they have a little bit of that where they're being presented with work that's going to be done, but they can't do anything about it yet. But keep it in mind because it's coming, but yet don't do anything now. And that feels a little stressful. Mm -hmm. So I definitely agree with everything that you just said. The thing that I would add to that or the thing that I also consider in that world is when the team gets to the end of a sprint, like imagine you're on two-week sprint cycles and regularly there will be no more work to do. And like we've, we've done all the work and now there's no tickets left and everyone's like, I don't really know what to do. That I consider to be the other and like often teams are not able to get done everything in a sprint. And that's one 
Some would consider it a failure mode. I think it's a realistic aspect of software development where software, mm -hmm. it's hard to tell out in advance. It's hard to estimate. Mm -hmm. um, but then the equivalent of now we don't have any work lined up, that to me is an indication that something in the process is broken down, that our team doesn't know enough, that like needs to be handed work that is so well constrained and defined. That implies that there's such a strong separation between product management and the development teams that the developers are just the people that do the work once the entirely independent team of product management has determined the work to be done. And every organization I work with has a slightly different Venn diagram overlap there. But my belief is that zero overlap is a very bad number or a googly-eyed Venn diagram is the worst thing. But then... A googly-eyed Yeah, Venn where, they're, where they're actually separate from each other, oh, not even yeah. just not overlapping. <laughs> I've never uh, heard it called It's a wonderful that. phrase that my brother introduced <laughs> me to that I, that I love. That's um, awesome. But in my mind, I want to see like, I don't know, 10%, 25% overlap. That to me is what Agile represents, is that continuous communication Mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, the product management team sits in a room and then they define the stories, they hand them to the developers who in two week sprints work on them and sometimes run out of work and then don't know what to do. That all feels like it's, it's part of the same sort of thing. There's a very fine line and falling on either side of it can have trouble. But that communication, again, to come back to your first point, it's like that is the solution to most of these problems, or at least a solution, a way to start thinking about a solution. One final thing that I'll throw out there is it seems like so assuming everything else has to stay the way it is, assuming the services have to stay structured the way that they are, I think there's just like API contracts that maybe need to happen here. Again, I'll mention GraphQL because I'm a fan of it, and I think it solves some of these problems extremely well. But even behind that, if you have an SOA, a service-oriented architecture behind a GraphQL endpoint, you still need a way to connect those together. And I think mm -hmm. Swagger or similar documentation is probably the answer there to ensure that everybody's agreeing on the shape of objects and what fields and what's nullable and what's not. I will say, though, I've never used Swagger or JSON schema or any of those successfully. So Those are the ones that will generate based on your code? They'll generate documentation for you? They'll partly generate documentation, but they are, the, as far as I understand it, the documentation of this endpoint responds with data in this shape and has these fields, which is a string and things like that. It's essentially what the GraphQL schema is, but mm -hmm. it's typically more with a REST API. So I'm assuming there's a REST, there are many REST APIs probably at play in here. And so I think all of that cross-chatter, if you're seeing bugs introduced due to misalignment between them, then maybe some more robust system to try and lock that down. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a nice have for the teams as a way to have expectations of how they expect to have their work and then be able to complete. And then also as a way to bring up concerns, if they have a question, they'll have that documentation as something to point to. And there's also another part that you'd mentioned where they have some issues that come up, but no one notices until they're working on that particular story. And that feels like a pain point that I've certainly run into before, not just for me, but I've seen others where you'll grab a ticket and start working on it. And it's really not till you're deeper into the ticket that you start to see the concerns. And some of those feel very fair. It's just part of the exploratory process of starting new work, and you're not going to know until you're there. And then Part of it feels like it can be mitigated with a discussion upfront about the ticket. And like you said, not going so far that you want to curate like all the acceptance criteria for work to be done, but having a general conversation about what you think the work for that ticket will be. And this is going to be a bit funny just because I've, Matt Sumner and I wrote the blog post on where we're not terribly big fans on estimation. But I do think that there's some value in having those higher level discussions about work and then giving it something that's a more generic, like, is this a medium ticket? Is it large? But having that conversation with others in the room that might have more knowledge than you do about that work, just in case that helps, like, 
spur further questions before you're already a day into the ticket and then you run into some roadblocks. Hmm. I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but the idea of having those estimation discussions and then throwing away the estimations, but using them as a mechanism to see like, are we roughly in the same ballpark in how we're thinking about this feature or are we wildly misaligned? Yes, that's perfect. I hadn't heard someone say that before. Have the estimations, but throw them away. Yes, I like that very much. That, I believe, is something that I got from Laura Young, who is the managing director of our London office. But yeah, I like that as an idea because I I have found utility and someone says it's a small and somebody says it's an extra large. And I'm like, whoa, okay, tell me about that. That's a conversation I want to have. But at the same time, I'm also a big fan of just-in-time conversations I don't necessarily want product management or anyone further up in the process to have to try and assume what I do and don't know and then Mm -hmm. write as much documentation as to make sure that I could pick this ticket up in a vacuum. I'm personally very happy to engage and Mm -hmm. kind of circle back as necessary and get more information. But I think that one conversation of like, let's loosely talk through all the stuff, make sure we have a rough idea of how we might approach it and how big of a thing we think that is. And I think that can be a great way. And again, especially if there are groups that own the whole slice of a user experience as opposed to we're the user service and we need to make an API endpoint that does a thing. That's so much harder to have that conversation and have it be impactful and meaningful and encompassing. Have you worked with teams before where they've had enough larger number of teams where then they've had a feature that needed to be implemented and it would impact, let's say, like three or four teams? And then they would maybe like assign a squad to sort of carry out that work across all the different teams. Have you done anything like that before? I have not experienced that. I don't think so. I think we have worked with organizations that have that shape Mm -hmm. and we have felt a lot of pain when working with them. And especially in contrast to the typical monolith approach that historically Mm -hmm. has been our view. But I have not, in my experiences, had that. Okay. Was the pain from because they were tackling tickets that way when it spread across many teams, or was the pain in other areas? I believe it was having to communicate across a bunch of teams, having to agree and align on interfaces, and, okay, are you going to build the API endpoint? Who's going to actually provide the data? And then how do I render it to the user? And you have to orchestrate a bunch of things when you're working in that sort of structure. And it's a lot of complexity and you need to handle like HTTP failures and all the other stuff that can happen. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Uh, I think I've done that once before at a previous job where we had about four different teams and they were all different products. So it was pretty rare that they needed to talk to each other or work together. But every now and then we would have something that would come up where we wanted it to implement across the different products. And then we would take someone typically a couple people from each team, but we would have those people be the designated ones that had the higher level view. They were in more of the discussions about the features, and then they could go back to their teams and bring their team up to speed. And then they were also the point person for anyone else to go to and ask questions. So when they had those questions, like you were just talking about, like, well, where am I getting this from? And who's working on this part? They were that one that had that answer. But I liked how they gave the role to the engineers. And I I thought that part was neat. It adds the buy-in as well to the team when you get to be in charge of it. Yep, I think that definitely makes sense. And that idea of having someone who owns the whole story, because it's so easy to just like miss a part when you're like, okay, you do this and you do this and you do this. And then if you're not thinking about, and how does it all connect? Mm -hmm. Then I have definitely experienced that where we got to the end of a bunch of people working in parallel and suddenly we're like, wait, we're just missing an entire segment of this chain. And we had to rush around for that last week to put the pieces together. And so 
actually now that I think of it, I have worked on a system that was like that and that is how it ended. Hmm. Uh, and that last week was me running around frantically trying to be like, okay, what's the shape of your data? Okay, cool. And I connect that to here and I basically drew a little diagram of the message goes from here to here and then to this system, and then to this system. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything here. That's a big gap. Let me figure out how to answer that. And then it will go on and finally be presented to a user. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get it, but it was a frantic, frantic sprint right at the end. Oh, that's tough. no fun, but... Well, it's last minute stressful like that. And it's going to be like, that's a hard thing to solve when you're trying to implement something across all those products. So I can I can see why teams would struggle with it. And then it's nice to then have people have that ownership. So then they have the idea, kind of circling back to what you were saying earlier, where you don't want to have defined prerequisites. They don't need to be too strict in their requirements. They don't have to be that flushed out, but it is more of an idea of like, we're going to keep having conversations about this on a weekly basis but we need someone to be in charge of those weekly conversations. That was really fun. I hope we get more questions from listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that was useful to our anonymous listener out there. Hopefully that gives you some direction maybe. But yeah, thank you for writing in. Well, with that, I think we can probably wrap up. Uh, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed the episode or any others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed. I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.